We just sang a song a moment ago that had the message in it, bringing in the sheaves. And as we sing that song, it certainly makes us think about that gospel meeting effort. It will be beginning here in a short seven days. Next Lord's Day morning, we of course will kick off that meeting by the blessing of God. We're excited about it. For some number of weeks, of course, preparations have been made. If you would, please continue to pray for not only Brother Jeremiah and his delivery and his preparation of those matters, but certainly for us as a congregation that we will have the things done that will be our part that will help to spread forth the blessed kingdom of God, the message of truth, that the sheaves might be brought in. As we come to that particular part of our worship today in which we consider a section of the Word of God, a portion of it, this too will have at least a little bearing as we think about that upcoming gospel meeting. But not only that, it's a far-reaching premise. As you can see on the wall to my left, one church is the title I chose to give to this particular message. But here are some introductory thoughts that will motivate us and lead us into a more extensive consideration of these matters. Who among us would question the great blessing that comes with being a Christian? Those who know the truth every day, how thankful we are. And one of them is the assembly opportunities like in which you and I are gathered today. Aren't we told in Psalm 122 verse 1, even in an ancient day that was before the great blessings through Jesus, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go up into the house of the Lord. Were you glad this morning? Were you excited about the opportunity to come to this place and worship the great God of heaven? I trust that we all were and continue to be. You'll notice in the middle of that slide, there's a great danger, a warning, and it's certainly not anything new. God's people have been wrestling with it now for centuries. In fact, the first century church dealt with it. There's always a very vital problem a very strong temptation to view the things, speaking of the church and other matters, through the lens of culture, the lens of experience, and the lens of our commonality. You'll notice, though, that that's dangerous. In fact, not only is it dangerous, it is very, very eternally damning. You remember what Naaman did. Naaman was given a command by God through, of course, Elisha's messenger. And yet Naaman wanted it done the way that he preferred. He wanted his cleansing from leprosy to be done the way that he thought would be appropriate. And so he nearly proceeded away from the place without ever going to the Jordan River. And finally his servants reasoned with him, If the prophet had bidden you do some great thing, would you not have done it? And then he finally went and he was cleansed. But there, due to his own preconceptions and his own ideas, he almost left still a leper. Today, and it's still true, it's so potentially tempting to view things through the lens of what we prefer and the lens of what it appears to be the reasonable thing, when all the while it's not the way God said it. As you'll notice at the bottom of that slide... That whole issue, of course, touches the very subject of the grand nature of the church. And although many specifics could be asked, why don't we just do it by way of number today? How many churches are there? Now, you and I know very well that there are so many opportunities for individuals to give presentations and lectures and those in high places to give their perspective on this. We're not interested in that. In fact, we quite frankly can't care less. 
what does God have to say about it? As we and I open and peruse the blessed pages of the Word of God, what does the Word of God have to say about this? And as you and I indelibly impress those things upon our heart and mind, we certainly will be the stronger for it. And we certainly will find ourselves in position to perhaps be stronger and better servants for the Master. As we begin our study, why don't we, of course, present a matter of great sadness to start. I use the word sadness because of the current situation that you and I not only face in this community, but, yea, so often around the world. When you think about the usage of the word Christian and the broadness with which that word is so often developed and utilized, you know very well that some of the things on this particular page, this particular slide, they're so commonly understood. Religion is a mess. The Christian religion, at least from the perspective of its implications of the world, is, is, a, is a serious mess. You'll notice on the top of that slide, think for just a moment about the number of so-called denominational presentations. That word denominate, the verb that goes along with that noun, as you can see, that word simply means to call or to give a specified name to. It'd be entirely reasonable then to use that word to call or specify one in a group of occurrences or one in a group of presentations. But you and I know from a religious standpoint that second definition is the one that occupies such a high opportunity. A particular religious sect or body with a specified name, organization, etc. I copy that definition out of Webster's New World Dictionary. And so here is a definition recognized in the world. A denomination is a religious group, a religious sect. It has a particular name, a particular doctrine. It has a particular set of identifying characteristics, if you please, one by one. As you look at each and every one of them, why don't we be specific enough to think about numbers? There are well over 9,000 Christian denominations worldwide. And let me immediately ask you to notice, these numbers, depending on the source you consider, may vary considerably. One source listed at that. A different source, namely the World Christian Encyclopedia, ranks it as well over 33,000. I would simply say to you that no matter how you look at it, the number is extensive. The number is rather large. For those reasons, might I ask you to notice, there's an additional note of sadness, it seems, the various sources that I was able to consider highlights the fact that the number is increasing at a rather notable amount each week. One source listed it as, on the average, five new denominations every week worldwide. Five new denominations, Christian in character, worldwide, every week. It doesn't take long to appreciate the fact that over a short amount of time, that number then is going to grow even far larger than it currently is. 635 denominations in the United States of America alone. 635 alone in our country. And I might say that's probably a rather old figure because of the way it's increasing each week. 
is you contemplate all of that with me, you'll notice then the current status in which our world finds itself and even in our land how it finds itself. The issue continues. Not only are those comments with those numbers to be observed, what about this one? I would ask you to notice that what tallies so very sadly is the observation of what goes along with those unique bodies, those characteristic denominations. What about their practices? What about that which they teach? The fact of the matter is this. Those Christian organizations claim to follow the same book. Oh, they lift high the banner of the Bible. Now, some of them may augment it with something else, but at the very least, they pay some degree of homage to the Word of God, to the Holy Scriptures. What's more, they claim to follow the same Lord. I'm not aware of any that would have any matter of question concerning that. They claim to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And not only that, they claim to have a special message, a message for their adherents that they are headed toward that golden land of heaven. Now you'll notice in light of all of that, the claim to follow the same Lord, the claim to follow the same book, the claim to be headed to the same place, but yet the paths by which they're traveling are so different, so very different. And not only that, logic alone reigns supreme as we appreciate that it's easy to tell, isn't it, that some of them clearly cannot be in harmony with the, with the other ones. This group claims baptism is not important for salvation, but this group says that it is. Now, friend, they both can't be right. They simply cannot both be right. It's impossible. And by the same token, this group says you can worship with a mechanical musical instrument if you like. God doesn't care. And this group says, no, if you do that, you're wrong. Now, both cannot be right. Doesn't logic alone dictate that there is great confusion here, at least for the masses, when all along it was never by God intended to be this way? You'll notice as you come to the middle of that slide, the name alone. You and I noted a moment ago, by definition, these religious sects, S-E-C-T-S, these religious organizations, and yet the names, in fact, could be extended considerably. There are those who label themselves as Methodists and those who label themselves as Baptists and those who label themselves as Presbyterians. We today are not in any way disparaging their earnestness or sincerity. We're only asking, what does the Word of God have to say about the name? What does the Word of God have to say about the character of that organization? What does the Word of God have to say about the number of churches that the Blessed Savior purchased? As we study that, perhaps in more detail, might I invite you to note at the bottom. I just highlighted that many of the things we appreciate are so distinct, they're mutually exclusive among what is taught. That alone perhaps leads to this. And yet think about the messages. Sometimes the Bible, it would appear, plays a very minor role. The messages that are delivered or preached from the pulpits, quite often it seems surround social matters and topics of present interest, whatever they may be. Our interest is only one more time. What does the Word of God have to say? As you and I know very, very well, 
the message of asking how many churches are there is very different from asking how many did God approve? How many did He purchase? How many are in fact right in His sight? That's our critical interest. As we turn the page, let's cast a strong spotlight then on allowing the Word of God to in fact chime in, not just in an indirect fashion, but rather clearly. Let's start like this. When you and I have gathered together this morning, might we notice then that we here as the Pippin Church of Christ, part of our designation is the word church. Now the word Pippin tells in what community we assemble. It tells the particular base, if you please, where we perform our efforts or where our assembly takes place. This is the Pippin community of Putnam County. But there is that word church. The Greek word is ekklesia. E-K-K-L-E-S-I-A. You'll notice that I've tried to highlight the significance and the power and majesty of that word. It, of course, is strewn all across the New Testament pages. One by one, you and I can think so often about the churches which we encounter in the New Testament. In fact, you and I will notice a number of features about it this morning. But that word ecclesia, think a minute about the significance of it. The prefix ek means out of. The noun classis means a calling. And so to put the two together... It identifies those who have been called out of something into something else. May I say, it is those who have been called out of the world, who have been called out of fellowship with Satan, into a covenant relationship with God through Jesus Christ. They've been called out. You and I today as Christians, we have heard and accepted that call and as a consequence of it, we are now part of a body we once were no part of. We're a part then of that church purchased by the blood of Christ. Is it in light of that? We can see a number of these descriptions. It is the body of Christ. Isn't that beautiful? In Romans chapter 12, verses 4 and 5, Although as individuals we are many, we constitute one body. Paul said that, not me. Paul said that, not the President, not the Supreme Court of the United States, no one like that said it. An inspired apostle did. The constitution of one body. In light of that, might we notice it's furthermore recognized in the pages of God's New Testament as the kingdom of God. Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords, Revelation 17, 14. Paul asserted the same in 1 Timothy 6, 15. As he is king, surely then there's a kingdom over which he reigns. There are citizens, there are individuals, if you please, of course, constituting the kingdom. It's the church. As you and I embed that thought in our heart and mind, isn't it a rather sweet consideration? We, in fact, submit to our king. In addition to that, you'll notice this church is recognized, and so very swiftly so, as the pillar of and ground of the truth. A pillar is something that's strong, something that's fortified, something that is able to withstand the difficulties and challenges of weight placed upon it. Pillar and ground of the truth. Paul, in fact, described it so in 1 Timothy 3.15. No wonder in light of all those things, the church then, this ecclesia, 
perhaps is worthy of our continuing thought. It seems as though we've reached the time to reconsider that passage that Alan read at our hearing just a moment ago. It was the lesson text of the morning. Could I invite you to reflect upon Ephesians 4? In the heart of that Ephesian letter, there have been those who've recognized that the book of Ephesians is rather prototypically a book about the church. In six scintillating, compelling, moving chapters, Paul describes the church in a number of perspectives, a number of angled representations of it. But all the while, we are left to appreciate the beauty and the splendor of it. As he reaches the fourth chapter, we've read the following beginning in the fourth verse. There is one body. Now, pausing there, only four words of the verse have been noted. There is one body. Now, in a moment, we're going to ask the details and specifics, but he goes on to say, there's one body and one spirit, even as you're called, and one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and the Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. Seven times in that presentation of three verses, a particular number was used in reference to a noun, in reference to an entity. You and I can easily interpret them and have no difficulty doing it in virtually all the instances. In fact, how many baptisms are there? One, verse 5. How many gods are there? One, verse 7, or rather verse 6. How many hopes are there? One, Verse 4, how many faiths are there? One, verse 5, how many bodies are there? One, verse 4, you and I know what the number one means. We've known it probably since well before the days of kindergarten. One means one. It does not mean two, nor does it mean three or half a dozen, and it doesn't mean zero either. It means one. A unique and specified entity of which there is but one. Here we have the statement from the Word of God that there is one body. Now in light of that, let's in fact inquire and I would invite you to do so. Otherwise, we have Paul telling us three chapters earlier. Go back just a few pages in your Bible, maybe even earlier on the same set of pages. Ephesians 1 verses 22 and 23 and hath put all things under his feet, and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. So Paul, as you speak about the body, what is the body to which you refer? Clearly, there are physical bodies, and you and I understand we each have one. An animal has a body, but Paul wasn't giving us a dissertation on biology here. Nor was he giving us a dissertation on human anatomy and physiology. He was giving us an inspired heavenly dissertation. He says the body of which he speaks is a spiritual body. And Paul, what is it? He said it's the church. So Paul, how many bodies are there? There's one. How many churches are there? There's one. Though all the world may wish to militate against it. Though so many may in fact refuse to submit to the truth of it, the inspired apostle forevermore affirmed there is one body. There is one church. 
you and I need constant reminders to that truth. Because of the message of the world, the message of those about us in so many ways will oppose it. Notice the text in Colossians. I've asked you to notice it from the slide that's before us, but in Colossians chapter 1, verse 18, this particular epistle so often referring to Jesus and His great blessing and benefit, it is there mentioned to us, He, that's Christ, is the head of the body. How many bodies, Paul? Pronoun the identifies there's a definitive matter. There is but one. He's the head of the body. What is it? The church. Speaking of Christ, it, he, it is very much there asserted of Him. He's the one, isn't it? He has the preeminence in all things. Maybe it's in light of those things you and I notice. Maybe this question. By the time Paul made this statement... And admittedly, the book of Ephesians was written a few decades after the church was established in the book of Acts. Let's then even go back further in time than that. So there was but one in the days of Paul. How about when it was established, how many were there? Could, did something happen between the time the church began and the time that Paul wrote that there was only one? In Matthew 16, verse 18. When Jesus had come into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he with such directness spoke about the grandeur and greatness attached to his efforts and his work. And there you may remember he said, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, I am? They begin to reply. Some say you're Jeremiah, some John the Baptist, one of the prophets. Jesus said, Who do you say that I am? Peter, in that rather bold and aggressive way, he said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus said, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. That's reading through verse 19 of Matthew chapter 16. In the midst of that, you'll notice that Peter had made a dramatic statement. You're the Christ. Though many others in the world, no doubt, had had a very different message. Some thought he was Jeremiah, some John the Baptist, some one of the other prophets. Peter was convicted and convinced that he was the Son of God. And he made the statement. Jesus pronounced a blessing upon Peter for that statement. And then he said this. On this rock... I'll build how many churches? He forevermore said, I'll build my church. The adjective was possessive singular. The noun was possessive and also very much singular, both in Greek and in English. Jesus never promised to build more than one church. He never promised to bring into existence more than one. But he did promise to bring one into existence. It is no doubt a very exciting thing to reflect upon the singularness of it. Though men have a very different message and though men often wish their own considerations, the Lord's church is different. It belongs to Him. It is for that reason you'll notice in verse 28 of Acts chapter 20. We have again the Apostle Paul entering into this discussion. You'll notice again the matter was the elders of the church in Ephesus. Paul, of course, 
wished to visit with them, to meet with them. And he called them to come, and they met with him. And as they did, he said in verse 28 of Acts chapter 20, Take heed unto yourselves and to the flock, over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers, to feed the church of God which he has purchased with his own blood. We notice then that the precious, sinless, guileless blood of Christ purchased a church. How many? Again, the word is singular. Only one church was promised to have been built by Jesus, and His blood only purchased one. That message so far today has answered conclusively our initial question. How many churches does heaven approve? The New Testament only says one. Maybe in light of that, why don't we continue our study? Doing so, of course, by bringing it into our present day. You and I know very well what the message that so often is presented. The human family has always wished to be amongst the norm. The human family has always wished to be inclusive and very much tolerant and accepting. And I would quickly point out that that matter, of course, seemingly seems to be accelerating. We live in a world where the only ones not tolerated are Christians. It's so it seems. Any and everything is open and very happy to be accepted except the one who wishes to remain firmly entrenched in the truth of the Bible. That message is not welcome by so very many. That also includes, of course, if we aren't careful, a movement into the very church. There are those today whom you and I may hear who are very quick to say that there's any number of bodies, acceptable churches, if you will, and they're just each such that they have their minor differences, but Jesus is happy with all of them. Is that true? Let's study some more. As we do that, again, I hope that as you have your Bible, you'll look at these various passages with me. You'll notice as we come to that statement we made earlier. Let's expound upon it some. What does it mean to say that the church is the pillar and ground of the truth? That text in 1 Timothy 3, verse 15, might I invite you to notice the way in which Paul presented it. Here was Timothy, who himself had been left in Ephesus. He was there to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ. He was there to set in order matters that were so needful of, of the attention of truth. In that verse he says, But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself. Hmm, interesting. Apparently there are certain behaviors that are not acceptable. There are certain behaviors that are, in fact, not pleasing to God. To Timothy, he said, I want you to know that if I'm not able to come soon, you'll know how you ought to behave yourself in the house of God, which is the church of God, the pillar and ground of the truth. Reference was made, wasn't it, to the lovely house of God. You and I at that point immediately raised in the Old Testament. The statement was made in Isaiah chapter 2, verses 2, 3, and 4. The mountain of the Lord's house would be established in the top of the mountains and all nations would flow to it. And you and I, of course, from the days of Isaiah, longed to see the fulfillment of that. And so it was that in Acts chapter 2, in Jerusalem, exactly where the prophet had said, the mountain of the Lord's house was established 
And Paul here in 1 Timothy 3.15 said that Lord's house is the church. You and I today, 20 centuries later, are still blessed to be that house of God. Let us never forget these block walls and the wooden ceiling. We're privileged to meet here, but this is not the church. It's not. We as the church happen to meet within the confines of this building, but we are the church. And we look forward starting next Sunday to a gospel meeting in which we again, separate and apart from what may be the building, the church is going to assemble. And we're going to do so and proclaim the glad tidings of the gospel. And we're going to do so with a desire to send forth the precious truth as the pillar and ground of the truth. Anybody in the Pippin community, Putnam County, who has an interest in the truth ought to know where to find it. It ought to be right here. They ought to be able to find book, chapter, and verse for what question they've got. They ought to be able to, in fact, appreciate in this place a source to which they can turn for the issues and matters. And they ought to be able to find the answer of God here. You'll notice in light of that that the middle part of this slide takes us in full circle. One church, as one pillar and ground of the truth, brings us then to consider this. A moment ago, we raised the thought that a common teaching in the world, or at least a very favorable one, is a teaching that there are so many different religious organizations and God's pleased with all of them. Don't you believe that? That, in fact, runs counter and contradiction to not only what we've studied so far, but this next consideration. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse number 10, I would invite you to look at that in conjunction with two other passages. It was the case, wasn't it, that as Paul addressed the church in Corinth, near the beginning of that book, he said something to them that was so very telling. It was also very demanding. It was also very much distinct from what the common teaching of the day was. I would invite you to read it. 1 Corinthians 1, verse number 10. The text on that occasion says, Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that ye be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. There was a unity that was characteristic of the church. And it was a unity that was descriptive in the following way. They were to be of the same mind in the same judgment. Furthermore, there were to be no divisions among them. Now earlier today, you and I noted, and it's common observation that some denominations teach one thing and some teach something else. Paul said, that isn't right. It cannot be that way, for the truth is harmonious and it's unified. So we must never have interest in what men may think or what men may say or what some denomination asserts. Jesus never established a denomination. He didn't establish one among many. He established one. And therefore, to the holy book, we have to go. That's our only source. There's no other creed. Inasmuch as that unity is described in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 10, you did notice as a part of it, he said, same judgment, same mind. 
Suffice it to say, there is so much disunity in the religious world. This one thinks that one's wrong. This one thinks that one's not right. When our interest must be, what saith the Scripture? Romans 4 verse 3 still asks one of the greatest questions of all time. What saith the Scripture? And let that be our answer. Whatever the Scripture says. Surely you and I then can notice what about that text in Jude verse 3? As I mentioned a moment ago, looking at a few of these in conjunction. Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful that I write unto you earnestly, desiring that ye contend earnestly for the faith. Now in light of that text, you'll notice that when Jude started his writing. Or when he began to proceed, it was initially his thought to write about the common salvation. To write about, in fact, some other topic than that which consumed the book of Jude. But he said, upon reflection, I determined it was needful that I write, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith that was once for all time delivered to the saints. I would ask you to notice the way that verse ends. In Greek, the word that's used means once for all time. The faith which Jude had in mind was a faith that had been bequeathed and it was never to be changed and never to be added to it. It was once for all time delivered. May I say, there is no latter-day faith. Any faith that isn't 2,000 years old is not the faith. Any faith that's new is not true, and any faith that's true is not new. It's got to be, be 2,000 years old. The faith that was once for all time delivered to the saints. As you close that slide with me, you'll notice all of that unity brings us to appreciate the following. As we come to the last set of ideas about our lesson today, one church. And I might say to you that one would have to pretty carefully try to ignore those assertions within the pages of the New Testament. But yet those who are interested in the truth don't, don't try to ignore them. Rather, we base our life upon them and we with excitement pursue them. Would you notice 1 Corinthians 12, 13? There is there a rather innocent sounding statement, but it speaks such volumes how does one become a part of that one body, that one church we have studied about today? He said, you are baptized into one body. Doesn't that make it plain? You don't come into that body by vote, being voted in, by in fact being invited in just that by itself. You don't come in by paying some money. You're baptized into it. What about you today, my friend? Are you a faithful member of that body? Were you at one time baptized into it? And are you walking faithfully every day in it? It's that body that's going to be handed over to the Master. Or rather by the Master over to God on that great final day. So if you're not in that body, oh what danger. Oh what eternal ruin. Wouldn't you like to be a part of it today? The gospel plan of salvation that in fact brings us to appreciate one body is something that you and I might close like this. It is a unity that's characteristic not only of the preaching of the apostles, but even of that earlier of Jesus. 
Didn't Jesus himself, on the night prior to his crucifixion, he prayed that they all may be one. How many, Jesus? One. Aren't you thankful for the message of truth? Aren't you thankful that we have information about the one body? If there's anybody in the audience today, perhaps upon reflection of your life, you know that you're a sinner and you know Jesus died for you, but you've never done anything about it. Today would be the day. Today would be the day. Today is the day of salvation. If you hear His voice, harden not your hearts. Hebrews 3 verse 12. If we could assist you today in your response to the gospel plan of salvation, why not let us do it? Believe in Jesus to be the Son of God and do so with all of your heart. Repent of your sins. Confess His name as the blessed Son of God and be baptized. Upon so doing, He'll add you to the church. At that point, live faithfully until death. There may be someone in the audience who, though once a faithful Christian, that can no longer be said honestly about you. And you know it too. You perhaps have lived in a way that's far beneath your privileges. You have brought reproach upon Christianity. You've brought reproach upon the one church. Maybe others, upon looking at your life, see no difference between you and the world. If that's true, it's not God that's wrong, it's you. Why not come today rushing to His side? Now, you don't need to be rebaptized necessarily. What you do need to do, though, is to repent. You need to confess those things to God and to ask us to pray to God for you, and He's promised to hear. If we could help you today in that regard, this would be the time, the perfect time. And why not come even now while we stand and while we sing?